Oh, where to begin? So many questions for FT Senior Insider Ken Rosenthal, and also some of those answers in Fair Territory, which is out there now, um, released a couple days ago. Ken, great to see you. I wanted to start with your thoughts on the Braves, because we talked about Ronald Acuna Jr.'s accomplishment and um, the Cubs' collapse, but as we get towards the postseason, do you still feel great about the Braves, like potentially this historic dominant team, or... Do you put them down a notch because of what's going on with their starting pitching staff? I put them down a notch, Scott. And frankly, I'm a little worried about the Braves because of where their starting pitcher is, starting pitching is. Morton obviously is out for the division series. We know that. Max Fried is coming back, but he'll be coming back on 15 days rest. He's been on the injured list three times this year. He's had this recurring blister problem. So you can't exactly be sure you're going to get the classic vintage Max Fried. Then there's Spencer Strider, who has been very good for the most part, but a little inconsistent in the second half. And Bryce Elder, who has downright struggled since being named to the All-Star team. So they have enough, it would seem, if you have Freed and Strider at the top and then Elder and you patch it together with the rest. But at the same time, it's not quite what you want. Now, we've seen they can outslug anything, right? But come the playoffs, it becomes more difficult to hit, even for the Atlanta Braves, perhaps. And I just don't quite see them as invulnerable as before. Hey, Ken, do you, do you see still anybody beating those Braves? Because we always talked about, listen, this is the team to beat. You know, pitching staff or not, they can hit the darn ball. So do you still think anybody in the National League can take them down right now? That's the question, Todd. And the Phillies are clearly the one team that, of course, beat them last year with their pitching compromise, the Braves pitching, that is. And... The Phillies are a team that, in a short series in particular, can get hot offensively and really unravel a series, right? So I can see that happening. The Dodgers, it's more difficult because of their pitching concerns. Bobby Miller is probably the guy for them right now. Kershaw, of course, is still there, but he is compromised. He's hurt. So I don't know which way this is going to go in the National League. Now, the American League is even more wide open. But the National League, because of what has happened with the Braves starting pitching in the last two weeks, I see it as more open than it was before, for sure. Now, can Arizona with Gallon and Kelly get hot? Yeah, they could. And you can see some scenarios in which other teams kind of jump out here. Milwaukee, certainly, with their starting pitching, though there are questions now about Woodruff. So I do see it as more competitive than I saw it a month ago. But I ask the same question you do, Todd. Who is exactly going to beat Atlanta? Who got screwed over more? The Cubs by the Braves' 90-second celebration at second base? Or the Marlins <laughs> when the Mets decided they were just not going to come into work on Saturday? The Marlins, clearly. And this is a situation where one of their best pitchers, really their best pitcher, Braxton Garrett, was lined up to pitch on Tuesday and on Sunday in what would be the season finale. Because of that rainout that occurred on Tuesday night, in which the Mets grounds crew was scrambling to get the field ready, but it had been raining for three days in New York, actually four, and the first day they didn't have the tarp down on Saturday. So that game gets postponed. Garrett gets pushed back to yesterday, and now he is unable to pitch on Sunday, unless it's on short rest, which of course is not the same as being on normal rest, especially for a guy like this, really, it's his first full season. So that is the far bigger problem than the Cubs having to sit around for 90 seconds 
and wait for Acuna. And I'm with you guys on this. I heard what you said the previous segment. Obviously, it's a pennant race game, and the Cubs are focused on other things. But this was a pretty big achievement. And as Scott said, it was maybe 90 seconds or whatever it was. I didn't think it was the reason that Ozzy Albies hit the next pitch and won the game. Put it that way. Two pieces to my follow-up on the Mets thing. Has there been fines levied or anything like that? And why, besides you and this weird show called Foul Territory, was it not covered by New York media? If this was flipped, it would have been outrage. It would have been, you know, some snarky comment on the New York Times. Eric, I'm with you. And I can't speak for other media outlets and why it wasn't covered. I do not believe the league took any action against the Mets. And you saw, obviously, the owner of the Mets, Steve Cohen, issued an apology yesterday on Twitter, basically saying he's sorry to the Marlins because the field was unplayable. And people have said in the time that since the story has come out and since this controversy has erupted that, well, sometimes grounds crews do not put down a tarp when they think they're several days ahead for a field to get dry when a team is on the road. That's fine. I understand that, except the forecast, and I live in New York, so I know this, was rain, 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 and rain. It was not a secret that there was going to be some wet weather in those days. It was the remnants of Hurricane Ophelia. So I don't really understand what happened there. It was clearly unfortunate. And if for some reason the Marlins come down to the last day and Braxton Garrett has to pitch and he pitches on three days rest and he's not the same, you're going to have some people in Miami who would still be upset because they were really upset when this all happened. Ken, let's get, let's get into something a little more even wilder than that. The AL playoff picture. We have AL with Fox. You're in Seattle this weekend, I believe. I'm glad you got your frequent flyer miles so I can go to Baltimore. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> what, what, I mean, AJ, if the, I was in Baltimore, you'd be complaining about going to Seattle. Oh, a million percent. I'm, I'm glad you're in <laughs> Seattle and I don't have to go to Seattle. So I'm saying thank you very much. Enjoy your frequent flyer miles. Right. Enjoy your four seasons in Seattle, though. You know, we'll be at the, we'll be at the Traveler's Inn because you know, yeah, we have right. the four seasons. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, though, the AL West, right? Rangers look like they pretty much have it locked up now with, with where they're at. The Tampa Bay's in. Toronto's in a great spot. Houston with their win last night. I think they won the tiebreaker right over Seattle. So that's really a two-game lead. Is there, can there be more chaos? I mean, do you think it stays where it is? It's going to be Texas wins the division, Houston's in, Toronto's in, it's Tampa, Toronto, Minnesota, Houston. That's how it's going to line up. I do expect that, AJ. And the reason why is while Houston has a tough series in Arizona to end the season starting tomorrow, Seattle has Texas. And I believe Seattle is one and eight against Texas this year. Now that can change. And We've seen these teams, quite a number of them, flip this year. Texas was in real trouble. Seattle was rolling in August. Things keep turning. And is it conceivable things turn again? Yes. But Texas needs only one win to clinch the division. It could come tonight with Jordan Montgomery on the mound. And Seattle is going to have to get some things go their way or have some things go their way in order to get that final wild card. Toronto, to me, is kind of catching a break here. Remember, they got swept by Texas at home in mid-September. They looked cooked, and yet they came back. But the last two nights against the Yankees, admittedly, good pitchers, Michael King and Garrett Cole, they were shut out both games, and their offense continues to be kind of a mystery 
why has it not been what it was the last two years? So to answer your question, I don't see it flipping. But to look at the bigger picture, I do see a wide open American League. I don't see a dominant team here. Every team I can point to in this particular playoff situation has flaws, including Baltimore. So it's going to be kind of fun to see this all play out. But ask me to pick a winner, I couldn't do that. Hey, Ken, something funny. You know, today marks the 10-year anniversary when the pinky got broken of your finger. Do you remember that? Yeah, I have a memory of that, Todd. I remember <laughs> who hit it, too. I remember Dude. who hit the ball and who was mocking me for it. Hey, can we take a look? Is it, is it like disfigured or no? It no. looks the same. No, actually, Todd, let me tell people what happened here. Todd Frazier hits a foul ball. I've got my head down. I thought I was protected, but I wasn't because he hit the ball so hard. And with so much anguish, it hooked around the screen and broke my finger, took 10 stitches. I finished the game. It was like the third inning. I finished the game. And then Todd's doctor, the Reds doctor, goes home because it's a Saturday. He's not sticking around. So the Pirates doctor had to stitch it up. But he did such a good job that really you can't even tell that it was ever broken or ever stitched. It looks great. That's amazing because you some, you need that pinky finger to get the wax out of ears, you know, whatever you got to do with it, of course. Yeah, absolutely, Todd. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, from one Jersey guy to the next, to the next, actually, because you're a Jersey guy now, um, Mike Trout. I, I want to bring up him a little bit. Uh, you know him, the superstar, the guy that everybody wants to be. He's a beast. You talk about in your article about him. He needs to talk to Moreno now. He needs to get some answers because you don't want his second half of his second half of his career to be, you know, just like the first. They don't really make the playoffs. They don't do anything. I think you bring up a great point, but do you see him doing that, knowing him, how quiet he is? Well, I'm not say quiet, but he's not really big in that kind of controversy and that stuff. Right. And the point of this, what I wrote today, was basically to say, hey, he doesn't want to be traded. He is not asking for a trade, and people cannot expect him to be something he's not. You can't expect him to be James Harden asking for a trade every five minutes. It's not him. He is someone who was drafted by the Angels, signed two big contracts with the Angels, wants to stay with the Angels. So the premise was, okay, if that's the case, and he has every right to feel that way, then what's next? And what's next should be a hard conversation with Artie Moreno. Now, he has said, he said this most recently, earlier this week, to reporters that he does speak with Artie Moreno and the team president, John Carpino, at the end of every season. That's fine, and I'm sure those conversations might be even a little bit more pointed than we imagine. But at this point, he needs to ask questions such as, what is our plan? What is our direction? What the heck are we doing? Because Artie Moreno as an owner is unpredictable, I would even say erratic, and their direction seems to shift year to year according to his whims. So that's what I suggested. Now, I saw a lot of the comments on the article and people saying, well, Mike Trout doesn't want out because he's not a winner. He's not competitive. This actually ticks me off when I hear it because how do you think you get to be Mike Trout? Just floating along through life saying, hey, I got great talent. I'll just play. No, you're a great competitor. How do any of you guys, Eric, Todd, AJ, anybody else, how do you make the major leagues? Because you're tough-minded and you're competitive. So that argument, I don't buy. And while I would like to see Trout go to a contender, if that's what he wants to do, stay in Anaheim, then that is his absolute right to do that. And there actually are some things to admire about that, the loyalty, the desire to see it through. 
So don't tell me he's not competitive, he's not a winner, but at the same time, he cannot be passive about this anymore. I would say he needs to go to those guys, Marino and Carpino, and say, guys, it's time. And if you don't start running this franchise in a coherent fashion, remember, I do have the right to go public. And everyone has a patience level. I would imagine Mike Trout has one too. Dude, Ken, it's like you've been listening to me rant on the show for the last couple of weeks. But now, the biggest <laughs> news I got out of that was you read the comments in your articles. I cannot wait to get burner accounts and just make up all kinds of <laughs> bullshit to write in the comment section. Hey, AJ, anything you might say, and you're creative and you're a smart guy, I don't even know if you can match what I get on a daily basis. <laughs> AJ wouldn't actually hurt your feelings, Ken. AJ just like prods you a little bit. So if you see somebody like a little jab here and there, you're like, oh, flag it, burner account. Burner well, there are little jabs. There are wheelhouse punches that come pretty much all the time. It's just the nature of it. So you said in your article, you said, Trout, quote, your exact quote was, he needs to adopt his Trout's forceful approach. Now, we've never seen much emotion out of Mike until just the other day when he was almost brought to tears. Do you feel like now as an older player, there might be more of a, as you said, forceful approach that Mike could bring up? I don't know, honestly, Eric. And that emotion the other day was really interesting to me because this was not a spontaneous news conference at his locker. It was sort of planned in the sense that Mike is going to speak today. Here's the time. Reporters, you come and you talk to him then. So it's not as if they caught him by surprise. He knew he was going to talk. I think the emotion, if I had to guess, and I'm not inside Mike Trout's head, comes from the fact that he is so frustrated that he didn't get back really this year after the handmade fracture. And that it's been three years now of a lot of injuries. He's played in fewer than 50% of the Angels games the past three seasons, only 41 games in the second half the past three years combined. He's frustrated. That bothers him, of course. That's part of it. The fact that he has to answer these questions every year because the team is underachieving, that's part of it. But that emotion surprised me a little bit simply because it came at a time when you would think he would have actually been kind of programmed, right? He's ready for this news conference. It's his end of the year thing. He does it every year. But no, that frustration came through. And this idea that he doesn't care, he doesn't want to play for the Yankees, so he doesn't care. Just stop, folks. No. <laughs> yeah, the trout hating is insane. <laughs> it's just always people are like, oh, he's been hurt for the last few years, so he's not worth the money and he doesn't care. That's why he's staying there. Bullshit, dude. That dude cares a lot. He's I mean, also still got career left. 100%. Like people saying he's toast. That That is pushing it. You're going to eat your words. But the so. problem is, again, we talked Ken, we talked about this the other day. Where can you send him? Because it's a very limited amount of teams. And you know Artie Moreno, he's not going to want to eat a lot of the contracts. So if he does do it, it's just – it's it's so co- – we, yeah. we, we can spend the a whole offseason on this whole – between him and well, Shohei. There's no question, guys, there's no question that – his value is not what it was because of the injuries and because of the concern that this is not going to get better. Players don't usually get more healthy after incurring a few years of injury-plagued years. So I can see the concern there, and we all, I would say, probably don't see Mike Trout quite the same way because we know he's been hurt, and as you get older, you're more injury-prone or susceptible, I should say, and that is going to affect him. He's owed seven years, almost $250 million. It's a lot of money for a guy who doesn't play the full season. 
At the same time, if he does get healthy, and this injury this year was something of a freak thing, I would say, when you foul a ball off and you fracture your wrist, I don't know that that is any indictment on your conditioning. I don't think it is, actually. So you hope he gets healthy. You hope he stays healthy. I'm sure he wants to stay healthy and will do everything in his power to stay healthy. But the reality is he has had several years now where he's not been fully healthy. Let's finish with some manager talk. I loved your article you put out in The Athletic about all of the juicy situations that could go down. Um, the two that I wanted to ask about, um, let's start with Craig Council. And I guess that ties into potentially what the Mets situation is now that David Stearns is the guy leading the way in the front office there. What I'd like to do, Ken, is normalize manager free agency. If you are an ownership group, and you decide that you don't want to pay someone a certain amount or you don't want to lock them up to a long-term deal, right? Like the Brewers could have come to him at some point and said, you know, we're going to make you the highest paid manager or close to that. Probably would have taken it if I had to guess. I feel like there is a, yes, thank you. AJ is my director. I feel like there is a misconception here where a manager has to be loyal to his team. Craig Council is allowed to leave if the Mets decide to pay him $6 million and the Brewers will only go to three. It's not like he's suddenly ditching his players. Do you feel like the narrative is different for managers compared to players? I do. And clearly teams look at managers differently than they do at players as well. They see them as more dispensable, in my opinion. And they might deny that, but the way they treat them, the way not just contractually they handle them, but also during the course of a season with the way managers serve as almost middle managers now, between the front office and the players, they're like a conduit. That shows you that they've been devalued. Now, at the same time, Craig Council is a guy who was pretty active in the players' union as a player. He understands how the world works, and I am sure at this stage of his career, as successful as he has been with a team that does not have the resources of many others, that he wants to get his fair due, what he perceives to be his fair due. And right now, Managers, the top salary is not even $6 million. So my goodness, when you're paying some players who are not even performing $10 million, $15 million, and you won't pay a manager six, I mean, what are we talking about here? Craig Council has that kind of value. So the fact that he isn't signed to me indicates that he will be a free agent. It's just like any player at this stage who is not signed. You expect him to go to the open market. And I expect Council to go to the open market. And maybe it's the Brewers who step forward and say, you know what, Craig, we will make you the highest pay. We see you is that important to our franchise or maybe team. I will say this, that fans who say this isn't a story or this is Brewers fans who say this, leave our guy alone. Sorry, sign your guy to a contract extension and then this talk all goes away. Hasn't happened. So I know you're not a big predictions person, but you put out so many good nuggets in the managing Article, I need you to give me higher likelihood instead of predictions. Alex Cora being the GM of the Red Sox next year or your guy Council going to New York? Council to New York. Alex Cora is going to be the manager of the Red Sox next season. He already has ruled out being the general manager. He has aspirations to be a GM, but he has basically said that he's not there yet, that he still wants to manage. And he told reporters yesterday that he will be back as the manager next year. So, Council, the question is, 
Does Stearns want him? I would presume he at least wants to talk to him. Does Stearns want to fire Buck Showalter to get him? That's an important question as well. That's really the key question. And does Council want to go? And where is Council's head with all this? We really don't know. He hasn't said much about this at all. But at the same time, David Stearns has an interesting choice. He could say, you know what? I don't want to have any upheaval here. I want to learn the organization. Buck is a competent manager at the very least. Let's have him do this at least another year, and I'll see where I am. Or he might say, you know what? He's not going to be my long-term guy. And if that's the case, if Stearns believes that Buck Showalter is not someone he ultimately wants, then maybe he should make a move. I, I never believe in keeping guys around just to fire them later. It doesn't make much sense to me. So my other question is about Cora and the Red Sox, Ken. I know you hinted at the fact that some people told you Alex could have been more supportive of Heim Bloom. Can you elaborate on anything that you heard there um, verbally? Like, I mean, I, I remember seeing a couple times during the season quotes from him, like, you know, kind of working with what we've got situation. Is that what you're referring to or was there more? Well, what I said was that there were friends of his in the game who believed that Cora was not as supportive as he should have been, just as you mentioned, Scott. And quotes like that certainly can be taken in that light. When they had the situation where Bloom mentioned the Red Sox were underdogs and then suddenly Cora and the rest of the players were in underdog t-shirts, that was perceived by some to be a jab. But what these people were talking about was more behind-the-scenes stuff stuff that they weren't necessarily privy to and didn't want to share, but they felt that Haim essentially got a raw deal. Now, the other side of this, and we've all talked about this and written about it, is that Loom did have some deficiencies, and there were some things that didn't go so well. The deadline, for instance, I believe Kenley Jansen told Rob Bradford two days ago that if they had gotten starting pitching, they would have been fine with going forward. They would have been a playoff team. I don't know if I believe that, but the players, the fact that they did not get more support at the deadline for their quest, and Alex Cora's quest, that obviously bothered them. So there's two sides to this, but at the same time, there definitely is a feeling among Bloom's friends that Alex Cora was not as supportive as he could have been. That's the best way I can put it. Okay. Um, and yeah, we'll get to some of the other ones next time we talk. Unless, you know, the teams get to them first <laughs> on some of those changes. Um, but, Ken, uh, actually, one more thing, if you don't mind, and this is on the manager front, more just wanted to see if, if you had anything to say um, about Terry Francona, if, if, you know, you covered him for a long time. No, wait, was he the one that pooped on his scooter? It was <laughs> you, Ken. There we go. <laughs> well, we talked about that one ready. <laughs> <laughs> but I saw the police report. We talk about managers all the time, right, guys? And I just mentioned how some are more effectively middle managers now and really kind of acting as a go-between between the front office and players. Terry Francona had some hard times earlier in his career. With the Phillies, he kind of lost his job or got run out of town. With the Red Sox, we all know what happened there. And in Cleveland, he found kind of a nirvana in his career. He loved working for Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff. They have and had a unique bond, a unique relationship in which they were honest with each other. They could go back and forth. And Francona felt he had the support from those two guys that he never really had to the same extent in other places. Maybe at times he had it, but not consistently. So he enjoyed being there. 
And just from a writer's perspective, a media perspective, he was one of the best people you could ever deal with. He was always understanding that you were going to ask questions, didn't always have to answer them or didn't always want to answer them, but he knew what we were doing, understood what we were doing, and also had this amazing sense of humor and just way with people that you see in his relationships with players, you see it in his relationships with media, his relationships with everyone. And I thought it was so telling last night to see the way the players reacted when he was getting that ovation, how they blocked the dugout to prevent him from getting out of there because he never wants attention on himself. And to see Jose Ramirez, their biggest star, leading the cheers. They've been together a long time, right? Ramirez and Francona, you would not necessarily expect, I don't know, a close relationship. He's a manager, he's a player. They go their different ways, but there's clearly love there. And really, everyone in the sport loves Terry Francona. And he's going to be missed. He's an original. He's a personality at a time when not a lot of managers have the same kind of personalities that they maybe once did. So Terry Francona definitely was one of the defining figures of this baseball era. And I look forward to seeing him inducted in Cooperstown someday. Yeah, same here. Very well spoken. He knew. Ask him the rules. Wait, before you go, what are what? the rules? Is there a wait time for managers or can oh, I get in right away? <clears throat> Actually, that's a good question, AJ. I'm not positive. I believe they can get in right away, but of course they are subject to veterans committee votes. And now we have these different eras committees where different eras are recognized each year. So I don't know where we are in that process, which era we're up to. I don't expect he's going to go in next year, but I do expect he will go in at some point. With the Red Sox hat? Ask him. I don't know. Yeah, ask Ooh. him. Oh, I like the, the attitude. Let him know, Ken. Ken. Okay, yeah. Ken. You can ask yeah. Yeah. Him. I mean, he did win. The general yes. rule or the general standard is you go in with the hat where you made your biggest mark. Certainly two World Series championships with the Red Sox where, is where he made his biggest mark, but he was with Cleveland longer. So I don't know how that would work. Kratz is rooting for Philly, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Boston. It's Boston. That's my lock. It's Boston. Ken, thank you.